Today's bonus audio is from a workshop I gave a few years back called Lost in Translation, How Losing the Message Costs Us the Mission. If we're going to take the message of Jesus into new places, we have to know it well. Pioneering messengers for Jesus must know the message because chances are you'll be the only one proclaiming it. Pioneering missionaries for Jesus must be clear on the mission because chances are you'll be the only one engaged in it. I hope today's audio encourages you to know the message of Jesus so you can spread it effectively. Welcome to the workshop Lost in Translation, How Losing the Message Costs Us the Mission. And we're going to be focusing this morning on the gospel. Specifically, we're going to identify some major threats that may be causing you to lose the gospel without even realizing it. So we're going to talk about threats to the gospel. Uh, We're also going to recover the simplicity and purity of the gospel message. And we're going to discover how to be more effective in sharing the message with others. But before we dive in, let me just uh, briefly introduce myself. Uh, My name is Andrew Stroud. I live in San Diego, California, and I work with a ministry called New Creation Communities. Uh, Our mission is to mobilize a new generation of leaders for the church who will work as pioneers to take the good news of Jesus into new places. So one of our slogans is, out of the building and into the harvest. And while we believe the Lord is doing great things through the established church in America, our special focus is on multiplying leaders who will go beyond um, making disciples and starting churches outside of the traditional model. So our work involves training, resourcing, coaching, and connecting these next generation leaders. And one of the things that we've learned by pioneering and operating in a setting where you don't have a pre-existing established structure is that you really have to know what you're about. There cannot be confusion about the core message and mission because you don't have an established structure that's acting as a guardrail to keep you moving in a certain direction. So pioneering messengers for Jesus must know the message because chances are you'll be the only one proclaiming it. And pioneering missionaries for Jesus must be clear on the mission because chances are you'll be the only one engaged in it. In a very real and exciting sense, when you're pioneering, you're off the map. And if you're not careful, if you don't have a firm grasp of who you are and where you're going, you can easily become disoriented and disillusioned. And so this topic of recovering the simplicity and purity of the gospel message is front and center for us in our work. But in actuality, whether you're off the map pioneering or you're on the map working within a more traditional and established structure. If you want to make disciples for Jesus, it's critical to know the message and to know how to proclaim it with simplicity and effectiveness. So one final word before we get started. My goal this morning 
is not to add information to what you already know. That is not my goal. My goal is not to add information to what you already know. Though chances are you will hear some new things, and I hope that they're helpful for you. But my goal instead is to sharpen your focus on the gospel. There is so much noise and clutter around the gospel in our society and in our churches today. My goal is to help you begin to declutter the message so that you can be more effective in the mission. So the goal is not to give you more information, not to add to what you already know, but to sharpen your focus on the gospel so that you can begin to declutter the message, which is actually going to help you be more effective. So how will we spend our time over the next hour or so? Well, we're going to spend some time learning from the scriptures. We'll have an open time for questions and answers. And then at the end, I'm going to give you some great resources that will help you continue to grow and develop in this area. But we're going to start things off with a contest. So uh, around the room, you'll see we've got four tables clearly marked one through four. Also, when you took your seat, there should have been a small card with a number on it. Hopefully you've got that. That is your working group. And so you're going to find your way to whatever table corresponds with the number that you have. And what we're going to do here is we've got puzzles at each of these four tables, and we're going to have a race. So whichever number that you have, that's the table you go to. And uh, this exercise will take as long as it takes for one group to complete your puzzle. So whichever group completes their puzzle first, we've got uh, a free resource for you guys. This is, a, uh, this is a booklet that we use in making disciples out in San Diego called the Foundation Series. So whichever group finishes their puzzle first, I'll give you guys free copies of that. <laughs> Yes, so uh, one of the puzzle, one of the groups had all of the pieces, they had only their pieces, and their puzzle was simple enough that they could quickly and easily put it together. Uh, and I wanted to start with this activity because it highlights three major threats to the gospel. Because sharing the gospel is something like putting together that puzzle. Our goal is to present people with a clear picture of Jesus so that they can recognize who he is and then respond in faith. But our ability to do that can be threatened in these basic ways. We can have missing pieces. And that is the threat of an incomplete gospel. And so as we try to present a picture of Jesus to people, there are major pieces that should be there, that aren't there. Really hard for people to get a clear picture of Jesus and respond to him when that's the case. We can have mixed pieces like table two. This is the threat of an impure gospel. Things can find their way into our gospel that never belonged there in the first place. Maybe they come from tradition or from just human, human logic, things that we assume must be true about Jesus. But when we try to put that kind of a puzzle together, to present people with a picture of Jesus. Again, they have a very hard time actually seeing him for who he really is, and it becomes impossible for them to respond to him in faith. 
And then too many pieces. And this is the threat of an overly complicated gospel. Now, we can draw courage in knowing that the gospel message always faced threats. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the churches of Galatia, agonizes that the believers in that region, that part of the Roman Empire, are abandoning Jesus for what he describes as a different gospel, uh, a distorted gospel, and a contrary gospel. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1, especially verses 6 through 9. And this is really amazing because here we see Paul, uh, an early messenger of the gospel, only 20 years removed from the time when Jesus himself walked on the earth and originally shared the gospel message. Here's Paul 20 years later fighting off threats to the gospel and challenging the Galatians to not abandon Jesus for a different gospel, a distorted gospel or a contrary gospel. So this is just part of the struggle. There are always going to be threats to the gospel. There always have been, and certainly there are 2,000 years removed from Jesus, our first great messenger. If Paul was facing these threats 20 years into the, the church, the history of the church, then we're certainly going to face them 2,000 years. But it's a, it's a part that we must be aware of, we must actively guard against, that there are threats to the gospel. It's part of the struggle, but it's a part we must be aware of and actively guard against. But know this, if your gospel is on autopilot, it will be compromised. And a quote that uh, I heard from John Snyder, I don't know if he came up with it, but it's, if we assume the gospel, we lose the gospel. And that's really the same thing that I'm trying to say. If your gospel is on autopilot, it will be compromised. There's no chance. There are too many threats to the gospel. And we'll, we'll see more of this um, here over the next few moments. That's why the New Testament describes the gospel as something that has been entrusted to us and as something that needs to be guarded. So, how do we do that? How do we guard against these threats? And how do we recover the simplicity and purity of the gospel. I want to suggest three ways. Three ways to guard or recover the gospel. Number one, realize that the gospel is a message that must be spoken. Now, there's a popular saying, many of you may have heard this. It goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. <laughs> Have any of you guys heard that, that saying? It's fairly well known. St. Francis of Assisi. Yes, this statement is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who lived around A.D. 1200. However, no published source for this saying has been found prior to the early 1990s. <laughs> so, not only is it misattributed to St. Francis, but it also demonstrates a misunderstanding of the words preach and gospel. Because the gospel is good news, and to preach simply means to announce or proclaim. So to preach the gospel is to announce or proclaim good news. And it is not possible to preach the gospel 
without using words. They are indeed always necessary. We could illustrate the illogic of the statement by giving a parallel saying, feed the homeless and destitute and use food if necessary. <laughs> so, number one, realize that the gospel is a message that must be spoken. In fact, you could say that this reveals a fourth threat to the gospel. Not an incomplete or an impure or an overly complicated gospel, but a, a muted gospel, a gospel that goes unspoken, unannounced. So, the first way to guard and recover the gospel is to simply realize that it is a message. It's what the gospel is. It is a message that must be spoken. Number two, understand that while the gospel reveals the purpose, the promise, and the plan of God for salvation, it is ultimately about the person of God's Son, Jesus. So I'll say that again. The gospel does indeed reveal the purpose, promise, and plan of God for salvation. But it's ultimately about the person of God's Son, Jesus. And our message, what we share and how we share it, should reflect that. That we understand that ultimately the gospel is a message about the person of Jesus, God's Son. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And so it's this second point that has motivated us to train next-generation gospel messengers with a summary description of the gospel. In other words, every messenger of the gospel, every disciple, should be able to answer a simple question, which is, what is the gospel? A summary description. What is the gospel? So I'm going to put Lakeith on the spot and ask him to give us the answer to that. What is the gospel? Um, so the gospel is God's message of good news concerning his son Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, and how we can be a part of it. Yes. Yeah, we all need to be able, and the people that we're discipling need to be able to give a simple, clear answer to the question, what is the gospel? And so the way we've summarized it is that the gospel is God's message of good news concerning his son, Jesus. Really, we could just stop there. The gospel is God's message of good news concerning his son, Jesus. But we went on a little further. Specifically, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, 
what he will do, and how we can be a part of it. And really the whole Bible is a revelation of that. Uh, the, the message from God concerning his son, Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, and how we can be a part of it. That is the good news. So the second way that we can guard or recover the gospel is to remember that it is a message about the person of Jesus. And then number three, remember that the gospel does not just communicate revelation, it also calls for response. The gospel does not just communicate revelation, it also calls for response. Now, Acts 2 is a famous chapter in the Bible that describes events which took place on the first Pentecost after our Lord Jesus had risen from the dead and returned to the Father, notably the coming of the Holy Spirit on those first disciples who had gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. It also contains our first glimpse into the gospel message that those first disciples understood they were proclaim. And for that reason, it's, it's a very important chapter. So um, at the end of our time this morning, I want to make a number of resources available to you, which will help you go deeper in your understanding of the gospel and how to communicate it more effectively. One of those is a quick study through seven episodes from the book of Acts, seven gospel episodes that are found in the book of Acts, and it's a tremendously helpful study. I, I hope that you'll get that and that you'll actually take the time to go through it. Here in Acts chapter 2, we actually find the first of those seven gospel episodes. So Peter, seeing a crowd gathering, recognizes an opportunity, and he delivers our first recorded testimony of Jesus' resurrection. He announces the good news. And the question is, what does he say? Here's his first opportunity to bear witness to the good news. It's a, a very fascinating study to see what makes it into his gospel and what gets left out. And then to set that next to our understanding or what we tend to communicate when we share the gospel. And you can do that for all seven of those episodes in the book of Acts. It's very enlightening, so I hope you take the time to do that. We're not going to do that this morning. Um, we're actually going to skip all the way to the end of Peter's message, his, his giving of good news here in Acts 2, and look at verses 36 through 38. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. And these verses really serve as the finale they are the, the punchline. They are the climax of what Peter has been saying to the crowd. So he's already um, made his case. And when he gets to verse 36, he's, he's delivering the knockout blow. All right, so maybe uh, one of you, if you don't mind, just read those out loud. Loud enough for all of us to hear. Verses 36 to 38. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
what must we do? Repent, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is Peter doing as he proclaims the gospel here in Acts chapter 2? I would suggest that he is simply doing two things. First, he's calling people to recognize, to truly recognize who Jesus is. And then secondly, he's calling them to respond, to respond in faith. Once they recognize him, to respond in faith. And so he starts in verse 36 by saying, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, many people saw Jesus, but it's one thing to see him, it's another thing to recognize him. Peter's trying to to help them recognize who Jesus actually is, who God has made him to be, Lord and Messiah. And they do. We see from verse 37 that sure enough, their eyes are opened, and uh, they believe this, this is true. God has made him Lord in Christ, the one that we crucify. It says that they were pierced to the heart, and there was a natural desire on their part to do what? To respond, yes. And that's because it's the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is, is to communicate revelation and call for response. And when people, when the first part clicks, the second part is, is natural. People want to know, brothers, what shall we do? And we have to be able to answer that question. Right? That, that is, when we get to the point where we've shared who Jesus is and someone gets it, and they have a natural desire to respond, um, we need to be able to help them respond. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 22, very similar sequence with an unbelieving Paul after he had been struck by the Lord with blindness on his way to the city of Damascus. Paul asks exactly the two questions that he should ask in that situation. Do you guys remember, what were the two questions? Who are you, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? Those are the two questions that the gospel answers. The, the, the great drama of the gospel is captured by, their, by those two questions. Who is Jesus, and how should we respond? That's, that's really the, the two big questions that the gospel addresses and gives us answers to. So, number three, the third way to guard or recover the simplicity and purity of the gospel is to remember that the gospel does not just communicate revelation, it also calls for response. So, the gospel is God's message of good news. It's God's message. We are the messengers, but it comes from Him. It's God's message of good news concerning His Son, Jesus. Who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, what He will do, and how we can be a part of it. This message must be proclaimed using words. And the message of good news reveals the purpose, promise, and plan of God, but ultimately it is about the person of God's Son, Jesus, and our challenge as messengers of the gospel is to help people recognize who Jesus is and respond in faith to him. And it's this last point of helping people respond that I want to address before we move into our time of question and answer. 
So I have a handout that Lakeith is going to help uh, pass around. Uh, as you can see, it's titled, Recognize and Respond, How to Help Someone Enter the Kingdom of God. By the way, another great study that you can do is, how does the Bible describe someone coming to faith, uh, getting saved? Um, that is one of the ways it describes it, is, is being saved. Uh, coming to faith, entering the kingdom, being born again, receiving the word. So there, there's a, it's a fascinating study that you can do to just see what does the Bible say is actually happening. So if we share the gospel and someone responds, what's happening? Here we're just going to call it enter the kingdom of God. How to help someone take that step of faith. So recognize and respond. How to help someone enter the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice that our challenge as gospel messengers is twofold. As we've already said, is to help people recognize who Jesus is and then respond to him. So those are the, uh, the two uh, blocks in blue there. To recognize and respond. I also want you to notice that the gospel engages its hearers on three distinct levels. Their minds, their hearts, and their bodies. And so as we share the message with people, we need to be aware of this and to target all three levels. And the first challenge is to help people recognize who Jesus is. This engages the mind. It's, a, it's, an, it's an issue of the mind. And it is important to note that the enemy is fighting tooth and nail to prevent this. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And again, when somebody has that, just go ahead and read it out loud for the rest of us. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so amazing. I mean, this, this passage, it really just sets it out there, right? So verse 5, what is the message? What are they proclaiming? Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, we're trying to declutter the, the message. What is it that we're supposed to be testifying to? What are we supposed to be proclaiming? Some of your Bibles kind of say it backwards. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. But you could just sort of skip that first part. We proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 4, what is it that the enemy is actively trying to accomplish? Blinding the minds of the unbelieving. And he goes on to explain exactly what that means, right? What does he say? That they might not see the light of the gospel. 
Yeah, that they might not, Paul can be wordy. Uh, and he says that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, they might not see the image of God, which is Jesus. That, that's what he's actively trying to blind people, the unbelieving, to blind the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the image of God, the glory of Christ. And so our first challenge as messengers is to help people in just the opposite way, to help them so that they can see the image of God, Christ, and then respond to them. So uh, back to our puzzles. We want to make sure that we're able to assemble uh, a clear, pure picture of Jesus that is simple enough that we can quickly and easily help people see who he is so that they can recognize him. Once someone does recognize Jesus, as we said, there's an instinctive desire to respond to him. And this is part of the nature of the gospel, to communicate revelation and to call for response. And this brings us to our second challenge as gospel messengers, helping people respond to Jesus in faith. So it isn't just to drop the message and walk away. But for those who are ready to respond, when that crowd asks Peter, brothers, what shall we do? Peter needs to have verse 38 ready when they uh, ask him verse 37 in Acts chapter 2. So scripture tells us that this response involves both the heart and the body. That is, there is an internal and an external response that God is wanting us to have when we recognize who Jesus is. The internal response involves repentance. And repentance can be described as a change of heart on the inside that leads to a changed life on the outside. But it's something that happens on the inside. You can see the results of it as life is played out, but it's an internal response. The external response is baptism. Now, in recent history, and by recent, I mean the last three or four hundred years, uh, especially within the Protestant tradition of Christianity, we have moved away from calling people to respond to the gospel through baptism, and we have substituted instead what is often called the sinner's prayer, or the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Um, not only is this unbiblical, or perhaps we could be nice and just say it's extra-biblical. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. If you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart, it's probably okay. So I don't want to communicate the wrong thing here. Uh, just that it's not what we see in the Scriptures. It's not what we see in Acts 2 when, when they ask him, Brothers, what shall we do? He doesn't say, pray and ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, he has a different response that he calls them to. But, but not only is it unbiblical, what, what I really want to suggest to you is that it's less effective. Uh, saying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart is less effective than what the Bible actually gives us, which is baptism. Because this is the outward physical response that we see people being called to in the New Testament. Baptism is a powerful response because it is so physical. It's very physical. Um, the whole body is involved. In this response, um, it's it's a stake in the ground in a way that a prayer uh, so many times is not. All of us have had moments of emotional turmoil 
where we have said a prayer to God and maybe made a, a promise to God. And then we find that time passes and we don't really follow through with our side of it. And then we really begin to question and doubt, well, was that really, did anything even significant or real happen? You see what I'm saying? Baptism is a, it's a stake in the ground. Right? If you make the choice to go and to be baptized, it, it's so much more visceral than just saying a quick prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. The, the response needs to be internal and external. And when we're simply calling people to pray and ask Jesus into your heart, that's like internal, internal. Um, we need to help people respond in a very physical way with, with their bodies, which have now been bought at a price and belong to Jesus. So it's powerful because it is so physical, but also because the baptism itself is a restatement of the gospel. It's a very powerful, um, it's a powerful way of, of illuminating abstract truth with a very concrete action. Um, so baptism itself, anyone can go out into the ocean and, and get dumped. But it's what that means, and it's helping people understand what is this really symbolizing? What is it, what is it showing us on the outside? It's something that's actually happening on the inside. You, you can't see this. You can't see that all of your sins have been cleansed uh, by the blood of Christ. That's something that you believe by faith. But when every part of your body is covered with water, you can understand that everything is covered. It's all cleansed. By Christ, there's no part of me that has not been placed into Christ and covered by the blood of Christ. We can talk about, you know, we can quote Second Corinthians five seventeen that the old is gone and the new has come. Um, but baptism demonstrates that our old life is is finished. It's it's dead. It's been buried. Uh, just as we're lowered into the water and then we've been resurrected. That when we come up out of that water, it's a, it's a line of demarcation in our lives. That Everything that happened before that baptism was the old me. And everything from that moment on is the new me. It, it, it's a gift from God is what I want to try to convince you of. Is that when we help people respond through baptism, we shouldn't think of it as, well, do you have to be baptized? We get to be baptized. It's a gift that God has given to help his people understand just how amazing the good news is. And because of this, we should not discard it so casually. And I think we have in the Protestant tradition. Um, that's just sort of what we've grown up with, is that there's not as high of an emphasis on baptism as we see in the New Testament. Okay, so in summary, we must know the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel and we must help people respond to the gospel. Uh, losing the message will cost us the mission. Now, we ask, who knows the calling statement of the navigators? <laughs> right? So, to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom into the nations through generations of laborers, Living amongst the lost. Close enough. Close enough. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Hey, this guy gets a free book too. Yeah, I think it is the best mission statement of any.
Christian organization that I've I've seen. I love it. I think does a great job of capturing what I see in the scriptures. Like, yeah, that, that is our mission. That's a great way. That's a great way to put it. To advance the gospel of Jesus and His kingdom into the nations through spiritual generations of laborers living and discipling among the lost. Who wouldn't want to do that? That's that's a uh, that's a great mission. But that statement, it's called the, the calling statement. I, it's a mission statement. Um, that's the mission that we're going to lose if we lose the message. And the statement actually has three parts, uh, I think. It's got the what of our mission. So it, what is the what of our mission? To advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom, period. That is the what of the mission. So we need to make sure we're clear. Okay, that's, that is actually what we're hoping to accomplish. That's what we're trusting God for, to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. Then it gives us the where into the nations. That's where we want to advance, not just to the nations, but into the nations. And it even gives us the how, through spiritual generations of laborers living and discipling among the lost. But we can't exchange the means for the mission. The mission is to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. Um, We're going to specifically seek to do that through spiritual generations of laborers. But if you have lots of people and no one's advancing the gospel, you're not accomplishing the mission. So if, if we just focus on the means and we lose sight of the mission, then we're going to lose. It's going to cost us the mission. Three things are necessary if we want to see generations. Birth, maturation, and reproduction. But it really does start with birth. I was hoping that we could have roundtables for um, this workshop. And I was going to have coins. And everyone would have their pile of coins, maybe five pennies each, uh, in front of you. And then we would do an exercise where we would redistribute the coins and, you know, between, amongst ourselves at our tables. So you know, maybe four people at a table have a total of 20 coins, and they, they each have five coins per pile. And then we redistribute everything, so now this one person has eight coins in, in their pile, and someone else has four, and someone else has three, and someone else has however many is left. Um, and uh, the person with eight coins might feel really good because their pile grew. They have a bigger pile of coins now than, than they did uh, when, before the exercise began. But if we step back and we say, there's still 20 coins on the table. Um, we have not advanced. We have not grown um, the number of coins that are on the table. And uh, oftentimes that can happen for us, that there is a way to increase your tribe without growing the family of God. Um, And if people are only coming into our group who are already on the table, um, then that's good, you know, that happens. We see that in the the New Testament. We see Apollos going from Ephesus to Corinth and strongly encouraging the believers in the church there. So in in the military ministry, we're gonna have people coming and going all the time. And that is a, uh, a great thing. But we also need to be mindful of what, what I would call our native crop. You know, who are the people that are coming into the kingdom because of the work that we're doing in San Diego? These, were, these are pieces that weren't on the table before, and, and God has allowed us to have a hand in 
helping them enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's what we want. There has to be birth. If you only have maturity, that's all you're left with. There's, no, there's not even reproduction if you, if you can't uh, have new births. So birth, maturation, reproduction, all three are critical if we're going to see generations. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can help us reach more people by going to iTunes, subscribing, and leaving a review. And if you like what we're doing here, tell a friend about us. In an age of social media, word of mouth is still the best way to spread the message.